Welcome to our Mexican-American War bonus episode. During that episode, episode 32, we referenced a book by John Belolovic about the Mexican-American War titled Patriots, Prostitutes, and Spies, Women in the Mexican-American War. And we had an opportunity after we aired that episode to sit down with John Belolovic and talk about his book and his research. I'm so excited to share that interview with everybody as a bonus episode. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Surely, uh, my name is John Belolovic. I'm a professor of American history uh, at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Uh, and I teach the 19th century largely, Jefferson, Jackson, Civil War periods, uh, and American foreign affairs. And I'm so fascinated because, you know, this book that you wrote is about women's history. And I don't know if you know this, mm-hmm. but you're among 6% of historians who are male who write about women's history. Did you know that? That makes you. That makes you, know, you Kelsey, I, thank you. No, thank you for providing that information. I did not know that, <laughs> although, um, although I'm not surprised. Uh, the reaction that I get from a number of my colleagues, both male and female, uh, of course, uh, provides I think some kind of insight into the. I'm in a very, very distinct minority, uh, and there are a lot of uh, you know. Raised eyebrows, furrowed brows, question marks I can see as to, you know, why is it that you're writing about women's history? That's not exactly your field. Well, you know what? Why not? I mean, women write about men's history all the time, don't they? Mm -hmm. Uh, And they do it quite well. So why not men writing about women's history? Is your background more on you know, the book that I read is on the Jacksonian era, and I saw on your mm-hmm. uh, school's website that that's kind of your area of expertise. Um, is that what you did your dissertation on? I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah, I've been uh, pretty consistent, Kelsey, in that regard. Uh, and, and not, by the way, the consistency is particularly a virtue uh, in our in our profession. But, um, you know, I've got a number of colleagues who will bounce around in terms of a field and topic who will move from the 19th into the 20th century or perhaps into the colonial period, or, you know, they will change fields. Um, they will reinvent themselves. And, and you know what, that's perfectly fine. I, I applaud that. Uh, in my particular case, however, you know, I was fortunate, I consider myself fortunate to have found a field, uh, a chronological period in the 19th century where I'm absolutely fascinated uh, by the people, by the events, uh, by what transpires in the evolution of the country. Uh, I find that um, it is a turning point, obviously. The you know American Civil War, obviously a watershed moment, but also issues that relate to urbanization, immigration, industrialization. I mean, we've become a whole different country uh, between the, uh, the age, if you will, of Jefferson and the age of Teddy Roosevelt. If you do focus upon a particular era, what you find is it's 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 like in some ways, Kelsey, it's like going down in a well. It, it's you're not plowing the field broadly. 
right? You're digging, you're digging down deep into the period, into the era. And when you do that, uh, you find that there are more and more interesting events, happenings, um, people, uh, and you, you find yourself really captivated by these individuals. You know, I've studied, I've studied the Mexican War probably the better part of my entire career. And you can't help but study the Mexican-American War and, and not realize that women were a critical part of the war period, uh, you know, of what happened in the war, their, their impact on the war, um, who and what they were. I mean, they're amazing, amazing women. Uh, they're, they're just incredible. Um, and so the more you read about them, the more you ask the question, what do we know about them? What do we know about their involvement, about who and what they are and what they did? And you look out there, Kelsey, and you say, okay, what's been done on this topic? I mean, who's written about them? And you discover, well, there's, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot. Now, you're not quite sure why in some cases. And as you point out correctly, uh, the field has been dominated, obviously, women's history has been dominated by women. Well, let's face it, to be, you know, to be fair, you know, women's place within the profession is within the last half century. And so, you know, maybe a little bit longer than that, going back to the 1960s. So, you know, women have been, you know, challenged, I think women historians have been challenged to determine exactly what are they interested, what do they want to do, what do they want to look at. There's so many important things to study here that, you know, one of the subjects that they haven't really given a lot of attention to is the Mexican War period. And so, you know, what I hope to do with my work is to fill that void. It's a really great point that you raise because it's almost like they have to play catch up on you know, hundreds of years of history that's been written and to go back to every era, every topic and to find the women that were there and what their stories were, that's going to take, you know, you can't do that in a few decades. <laughs> so it's going to be a while before that is that is done. You know, I'm hard pressed. I don't know about you. I'm hard pressed to fault what has been done. You know, it's not like I look at the literature you know, and I say, oh, my goodness, you know, this, why did they do this book? Well, no, most of the stuff that's been done, you know, I find to be quite valuable, interesting. I mean, I always assign, you know, women's history in my, you know, in my undergraduate and graduate courses. There's, there are a lot of good works out there. So, you know, I don't, you know, raise a tut, tut, tut kind of finger, you know, at women, women historians and say, you know, why haven't you looked at the Mexican War? You know, I realize, I think as most of us do, that, you know, that there are a lot of challenges out there and a lot of topics to cover. Um, again, and as we've expanded into issues, uh, you know, of, of race and class, uh, you know, immigrant women, um, you know, women of color. I mean, there's just lots of lots of topics to look at there. And so there's just some great work being done. I, I, you know, I hope my work just fits in here somewhere. <laughs> um, at the beginning of your book, you talked a bit about how 
at the outset of war with Mexico, so much change had occurred in women's lives to that point um, that they were pretty well positioned to be involved and engaged on both sides of the border. And I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit about some of the major changes that occurred prior to the war. Sure, sure. And you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and again, you can look at at those changes, Kelsey, and you can you can point to a variety of factors. And we, you know, we mentioned the notion of of immigration, and we mentioned the notion of of industrialization. You know, those things contribute, you know, to the evolutionary role of women. You know, I, I talk with my students about this. You know, what's revolutionary and what's evolutionary? You know, how much time do you need to have revolutionary change? A generation, two generations? A decade? I mean, I think it's kind of arbitrary and debatable as to what is revolutionary or not. Uh, but I think we can kind of, you know, mark, you know, to respond to your question, you know, the period certainly from around the end of uh, the War of 1812, say 1815, you know, to 1840, that quarter century, as a period of pretty dramatic change and it revolves around women moving into the workplace, uh, particularly you're in New Hampshire, uh, particularly in New England, uh, along places like the Merrimack, uh, the uh, <clears throat> the small mill towns of of you know New Hampshire and and in Vermont and especially Massachusetts, uh, but those Lowell Mill girls, I mean they they really matter. They really, really matter. I mean, there are thousands of them. And there, there are young women leaving home, leaving those farms and those small towns, going off to the workplace, earning their own money. Uh, they're women of a certain class. I mean, that is dramatic change. Um, now, of course, we know they'll be replaced within a generation or so, largely, you know, by Irish, young Irish women. But it's still a dramatic change. It truly is. And then you have, um, of course, women uh, now uh, in the urban areas of middle class in middle class families, increasingly educated. There are schools out there like Monhole Yoke by the 30s, uh, Oberlin. There are schools that are educating women at the higher levels. Emma Willard School, of course, uh, in New York. So women are getting increasingly educated in the middling and upper middle classes, and they're getting into reform. They're staying at home, quote unquote. Uh, but that's, this gives them time then to engage in a variety of, of reformist activities. So whether it's temperance or juvenile delinquency or anti-slavery or, you know, ultimately women's rights, um, whatever that activity may be in the thirties and forties, they're organizing, they're, they're, you know, getting into a variety of causes that set them up, uh, to play an active role. More so, by the way, than the little bill girls, they're going to serve a different kind of role. But these middle class women in particular are going to become real activists in, um, you know, during the Mexican War. That's really fascinating. Um, under Jackson's, uh, or right before Jackson's presidency, uh, universal suffrage is expanded to men. And mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious. Does that attitude uh, and, and dialogue about suffrage 
prompt, you know, because I, I think it's, I don't know, it's interesting to me that, you know, within a couple decades of that, we see the abolition of slavery, we see the Seneca Falls Convention, we see a lot of, is, is there a tie between those things or, or are those spheres still pretty separate? Well, you know, again, you raise a really good question here because we're talking about men and women, right, as public and private citizens, the public and private sphere, if you will, of people's lives. You know, what happens in the home and what happens outside the home. You know, women, you know, are not citizens in the classic sense in that, you know, they can't vote, they can't serve on juries. Uh, they shouldn't have a place in politics. You know, we're talking about in the Jeffersonian period. And, you know, this prompts the classic, um, you know, Abigail Adams, you know, don't forget the ladies. And, you know, there are, there are a number of women, certainly in the early republic, who recognize that, that, that they're receiving short shrift here, that, that they're not getting the kind of treatment in a, a democratic republic, a new nation that espouses all these rights for people, democracy, liberty, freedom. Well, okay, well, what about for us? And it doesn't seem to be happening so much, does it? So, you know, you move into the post-1815 period and after the War of 1812, and this is when, as you mentioned correctly, literally um, you have, now again, with, with racial, of course, limitations, there is widespread manhood suffrage for white males provided by the state constitutions. This is not what the federal government is doing. This is what the states are doing. Uh, and you can be an immigrant. You can be native-born American, uh, not Native American, but native-born American, immigrant, doesn't matter. Uh, you can become a citizen and you can vote. Now, again, this is simply a reminder to women as more and more. Kelsey, you can imagine, what's the reaction of some Boston upper middle class woman when she realizes that the husband of, of her maid can vote. This is an illiterate Irishman. He can vote, but she can't. There's something in her mind that is significantly unfair here. And so, you know, you find this, you know, it's not that, that suffrage is at the high end of women's priority list in the 30s and early 40s. There are many more rights that women are concerned about in this era that relate to children, uh, to custody, to, to marriage, to divorce, uh, to property holding especially. I mean, all of these things are, are frankly, you know, more important, not that suffrage doesn't matter, but they're more important than the vote because they relate to them on a day-to-day -day basis and affect their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, again, suffrage is part of it, obviously, you know, it, it comes around, but, um, but there are a number of, of, if you will, demands that women are making. You, you allude, mentioned the Seneca Falls Convention by 1848. To what extent, particularly outside the home, should, should women influence the male sphere? You know, is that the right thing for women to do? Is that their proper place? You know, I, you, know you and I have chatted briefly uh, about the notion of Republican motherhood, right? And, and the role of women uh, in terms of, of being teachers in the home, especially with their sons and inculcating Republican virtue and citizenship. And I mean, that's what moms do. 
as they talk to their sons, especially also their daughters about being good citizens. Well, that's in the home. But what about on the street? What about speaking in public? What about raising questions in town hall meetings? You know, should women be doing those kinds of things? Well, you know, let's talk about Peggy Eaton for just a moment. I mean, this woman serves drinks in a bar. Now, you know, that's not exactly respectable. That's not what women in polite society do. It's very working class. It doesn't matter particularly that her father owns the hotel and the bar. She's a barmaid. And she hangs around with politicians in Washington. She waits their tables. She listens to their conversations. She weighs in. She talks to these guys. They know her. So she has a voice within a particular setting. Well, that's one thing, Kelsey. But for her then to marry a cabinet member, whoa. I mean, isn't that just kind of pushing, pushing the, uh, you know, the limits just a little bit? Well, more than a little bit. More than a little bit. You know, as one of the politicians uh, uh, of the day, as one of the senators, in fact, from the day uh, said, petticoats should not interfere with politics. And that particular line, I think, rings true. Uh, The women of Washington, quote unquote, knew their place. They certainly could play a role, but they had to be of a certain class. Um, You know, if you go back even to the War of 1812 and you look at Dolly Madison, who had wonderful parties, they were called squeezes, and she had these wonderful parties, and and women had the chance to to speak within the social environment, uh, to lobby, I'm sure, to use their influence, again, within a particular social setting at the White House or whatever the party might be. But that's not exactly a public forum. And so the issue that you see through the Jackson period is where, where is that line between public and private? Where's that line where women can feel comfortable or should be able to speak out? And, you know, Peggy obviously crosses that line because of her class, because of her attitude, because of who she is and what she wears and just uh, just. You know, the fact that her presence is there as a cabinet member's wife, you have the other cabinet member's wives saying, no, I'm not going to associate with this woman. So, you know, it's just, it's a really confining kind of environment for women within the political sphere that, by the way, Kelsey, they break out of by, say, the early 1840s. And we'll talk briefly about that. You find more and more women by the 1840s, 40-44, into the Mexican War, engaged in the public and particularly the political sphere. And that's an important transition. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. But more importantly, patrons are putting their money where their mouth is and making a financial commitment to getting women's history into the K-12 curriculum. 
We are so grateful to our patrons who sponsored this episode. Our herstory makers, Jeffrey. Our herstory heroes, Brooke and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie and Kent. And our allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah. Thank you. You guys make this show possible. So at the outset of war, um, you in your book, you talk about how women are patriots, prostitutes, and spies. And maybe we could address them in that order. <laughs> um, but I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit about women during the war period and some of the things you uncovered in your research. You know, the idea of, of women taking a position um, they had to. I mean, this is a this is a war that involved. It was a national conflict uh, declared literally by President Polk uh, in the spring of 1846. Uh, he blamed the Mexicans for it. Uh, American blood, Polk said, was shed on American soil. The Mexicans had crossed the Rio Grande and invaded the United States. Now, whether that was true or not, uh, this is what Polk claimed, and patriotic Americans embraced that view. Now, there were doubters, for sure, but patriotic Americans embraced that view, and American men by the thousands joined the army. What are women to do? Um, they're conflicted. Their sons, um, their fathers, their husbands are going off to enlist. There's no draft. They're going off to enlist. They're enlisting from small towns in Pennsylvania and New York, from farms in Illinois and Indiana and Ohio, from South Carolina and Kentucky. Uh, this is a, um, a national conflict. Although, Kelsey, we should point out that New England, uh, you know, kind of where you are as we speak, I mean, New England is not exactly a hotbed of support for the war. And that largely has to do with the perception, fairly or not, that Mr. Polk's war was to extend slavery. And of course, the anti-slavery movement was quite strong uh, in New England. And so you find support among men and women, much less so in New England than you do in other parts of the country. Uh, if you're trying to raise troops in New England, uh, and there's one fellow in particular, I, um, I'm betting you're familiar with Newburyport, uh, who is from Newburyport, Massachusetts, uh, who tries to raise a unit for the Mexican War. He does so successfully, but it's with some difficulty, much more so than if he was trying to do the same thing in Pennsylvania or Ohio. So, you know, women, women are conflicted. Um, they, uh, most of them in 1846 are patriotic. Uh, they rally to the colors. They uh, they want their sons, daughters, uh, daughters, sons, uh, husbands, fathers home. Uh, they want them, by the way, uh, to fight bravely. Uh, don't be a coward. Uh, preferably, they don't want them to sacrifice their lives. But uh, you find these quotes are kind of Spartan women. Uh, Return with your shield or on it. That that kind of thing. 
uh, from, you know, from women uh, in 1846, 1847. And, and you find, Kelsey, a lot of patriotism uh, in the making of flags and banners, um, blankets, shirts, socks, the kind of thing that you would, you can envision uh, women very, very patriotically engaged in kind of activities uh, in which they would be giving to the unit or to their individual favorite soldier to carry off with him uh, to Mexico. So this is where, you know, kind of the majority of um, American women are uh, in, 18, uh, in 1846. The point I try to make, though, Kelsey, in the book is that there are also a number of women who are literally on the front lines. I mean, who are with the army, for example, or who serve, you know, as correspondents. Uh, you know, they're in, they're in different you know capacities during the war, but they are women doing something markedly different than what we've seen in previous American conflicts. These are, you know or American women at the front line of the war. It's so fascinating. You talked in one about the, at one point about the, the nurse who shot down in the middle of the field and how that gets republished, not only in Mexican press, but in American press, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The maid of Monterey. The maid of Monterey. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's not a dry eye in the house. You cannot read that story without tearing up. And, uh, and it was widely, widely reprinted. Uh, and, it, of course, it's acknowledged. This is not an American woman now. This is a, a Mexican woman who shows, by the way, the best of femininity, the best of womanhood, by, you know, bringing aid, you know, food, water to the wounded on both sides, uh, in the middle of a battle. And, and as you mentioned, she dies ignominiously. Uh, you know, she is shot and killed. We don't know by whom. Uh, obviously an accident, it is argued. But her, her death is lamented by both sides, and there's poetry written about her from both sides. And she becomes a heroine. And uh, again, it, in part, Kelsey, what this does, it, it also reinforces the notion of the true woman, right? This was the true woman. She was willing to, to extend herself uh, to do, uh, you know, her, her missions of mercy. Her, her, she's the agent of mercy here and of sustenance. And, uh, and she does this even at the cost of her own life. So what more could one ask of a woman? This is, so this is, at the time, uh, of course, reflecting of her courage and her bravery, but also keeping her within the proper sphere. So tell us a little bit about prostitutes during this war. Do you think that's a term that these women would still be called today? Or was, or was that just sort of like the era? <laughs> well, no, I mean, they, they would be. And, and, you know, and again, we have to, you have to distinguish, and I, you know, I took some heat for this, certainly, I think, from some quarters. Um, you have to distinguish between, you know, those folks who found themselves, you know, engaged um, in running, let's say, uh, 
you know, there are a couple of women who come to mind, one Mexican, one American. Um, a, uh, the, the richest woman in Santa Fe, New Mexico, a, a woman named uh, Gertrudis Barcelo, uh, Dania Tulas, as she was known. Uh, she ran a house, shall we say, uh, in Santa Fe. Uh, she had gambling. She herself was a dealer, car dealer, and very good. Uh, but she ran this house in, uh, you know, on the square in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, um, accumulated an incredible amount of money. In fact, she, as the richest woman in Santa Fe, richest person in Santa Fe, not just woman, uh, richest person in Santa Fe, uh, she found herself loaning money to the American Army when they had a cash shortfall. So, you know, you have her. And again, is she respected within the community? Well, yeah, at some level, she certainly is. Is this a career that she adopts by choice? Um, you know, running a house of ill repute? Well, that's, again, arguably debatable, uh, given her background, which certainly was, you know, difficult. Uh, and same thing was true of the women who, who worked for her. You can look at, the, um, uh, at Sarah Bowman. Uh, Sarah Bowman is a, a woman from Kentucky. Uh, she is a woman born of poor background who finds herself traveling along with uh, uh, with Zachary Taylor's army. Uh, she becomes a hero um, for supporting, again, uh, the soldiers by bringing them food and drink uh, in the middle of a battle. And so, you know, as a heroic figure, uh, she is widely respected and admired in the you know, in the army, uh, she ends up uh, about oh, a year or so into the war. She opens a hotel, uh, and I use the term loosely. The, uh, the the kind of standard joke was that uh, that Sarah's you know American hotel, you know, the men would complain bitterly uh, about paying a couple of dollars uh, for a dozen eggs, uh, but they would definitely not complain at all. Uh, about paying a couple dollars for a room uh, at the American Hotel uh, with the accompanying services. Uh, I think it tells us something, Kelsey, uh, about Sarah, that uh, after the war, uh, she wanders around a bit and, and uh, you know, and finds herself um, in New Mexico where she is bitten by a tarantula and dies. Uh, kind of a tragic you know, and for her, but the army removes her body, takes her remains, and she was buried at the Presidio, uh, American military base in San Francisco, uh, as a tribute to her and to her service uh, to the military. So, uh, again, interesting woman, as you can imagine, uh, uh, controversial, uh, if I tell one of my favorite stories, uh, this is this is Sarah at her best. She's in the lobby of the hotel when a, a young soldier comes in from Zachary Taylor's army. And he yelled out, Zachary Taylor lost, Zachary Taylor lost, his army's being cut to pieces. The Mexicans are headed for Saltillo. And Sarah just drew back and hit him between the eyes and knocked him sprawling and said, you damned SOB. There ain't Mexicans enough in Mexico to whip old Taylor. You just spread that report and I'll beat you to death. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is Sarah Bowman. This is Sarah. Now, 
having said that, Kelsey, Sarah Bowman is six foot two and weighs 200 pounds. <laughs> and there is, there is an image of her. She is something else. I mean, there's, there's no photography to speak of, of these, of most of these women. Um, uh, you know, the, the ones that we're talking about of a certain class. Uh, but there is a, a portrait of her in, in, at her hotel bar. Uh, and if you have a minute, you know, it's in the book, uh, you know, take a look at it and you'll see what I mean. She is indeed an imposing figure. So, yes, uh, you know, we have we certainly have women uh, you know, who find themselves uh, American and Mexican who find themselves, uh, if you will, as prostitutes. Uh, in some cases, you know, you don't know. You just don't know. Uh, it's unlikely it's by choice. You know, it's by, you know, economic circumstance, clearly in most cases. Uh, I mean, the country, Mexico, is a mess. And uh, and certainly as Americans begin to occupy or move through Mexico, there are more and more, uh, you know, young women who find themselves, one would argue, forced into prostitution by the, by circumstance. The role of women in, in novels, this is a period of a lot of, of novels. And within the popular culture, there are uh, any number of books. And I, you know, I mentioned that these are, you know, this is not Melville and Poe and Hawthorne, and, you know, Emerson. Uh, you know, this is not, you know, high literature. Uh, these, are, these are, you know, 100-page paperbacks. And they are uh, kind of down and dirty love, love affairs, love stories, um, often, oftentimes between an American officer who somehow is usually from Kentucky and, um, uh, and a Mexican woman. Now, she's generally, of course, of the upper class, and she's oftentimes one of her parents is going to be American. Hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, so she has... The appropriate background. So if it works out, it's legitimate. Um, if not, she is probably going to die. Uh, he won't die, but she probably will. So, you know, these particular novels are huge hits. I mean, they are bestsellers. Um, the, the books themselves, you know, have these really kind of cheesy titles. I'm uh, looking here. Uh, Inez the Beautiful or Love on the Rio Grande, the hero of Tampico, heroine of Tampico, or Wildfire the Wanderer. Ned Buntline, who was a big time writer in the period, popular novelist, Magdalena, the beautiful Mexican maid, and the volunteer or the maid of Monterey. So these are, you know, these are, are novels in which the women are particularly courageous. Um, they oftentimes cross-dress as men in battle. And then, of course, the American officer fighting them realizes only later in the novel that this courageous you know, person, this courageous cavalry person, is really a woman. And, of course, they fall in love with this person. And, you know, it, it depends. Sometimes it ends happily ever after, sometimes not. But one of my favorite novels in this, in this kind of broad genre 
is a novel called The Female Volunteer. And it's about a woman named Eliza Allen. Now, follow me on this, if you will, Kelsey. Okay. Eliza Allen is from Maine, all right, which, again, gives her street cred already, right, with, uh, with folks in New England. Uh, she's from Maine, and her parents disapproved of her marriage to young William. Well, young William is a hardworking, worthy fellow, and still he's not an appropriate class. So uh, her parents disapprove of the relationship. So in his despondence, he goes off to join the army to prove his manhood. She then follows him. She enlists in the army. She cuts her hair, dresses as a man, and calls herself George. Uh, as I said, there's a lot of cross-dressing in these. They are both wounded in Mexico, and they find themselves in hospital beds next to each other. What an incredible coincidence. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, oh, wait a minute. It gets better. Oh, gosh. <laughs> William fails to recognize George with her, his, sunburned skin, short hair, and uniform. They spend months together during and after the war panning for gold in California. He still doesn't know that that is the woman he was in love with back in Maine. They arrive back in New England where Eliza, right, George, emerges from their hotel room in a dress with her hair now down, totally surprising a stunned William. Of course, wait, wait, her parents, of course, are now delighted. They are proud of the two of them. They allow them to marry and live happily ever after. This book sells a ton. It sells a ton. You can look it up, as they say, Eliza Allen, the female volunteer. This is the kind of stuff that people were reading and devouring in terms of wartime novels. This one was even easier to digest for, it's, it's, shall we say, implausible, but people loved it in part because it involved two Americans and a love story, right? You didn't have to, to get through the, the issue of will the young American officer end up with a young Mexican woman? No, this one's safer because she is, after all, a young American girl. So anyway, I highly recommend uh, the female volunteer to you. Kelsey, I know that you would love to read parts of it to your very own students. So that's incredible. You would think that all the gender bending in terms of expectations <laughs> there would, would not be popular among, among a audience in that era. Yes, you would. And this is, again, see, one of the, again, one of the very interesting and even strange, uh, you know, issues that comes with this is that there's, this, as you know, Kelsey, tremendous reaction against cross-dressing. Certainly, Amelia Bloomer, right, is blasted, right, for her attire. And yet, here we have the American public devouring these, these cross-dressing books. Now, ultimately, of course, 
um, in all of these, the young woman is going to reveal herself in the end as a very attractive and very feminine young woman now adopting her true gender identity, including, of course, Eliza Allen. So as much as there is of this, and you again, you question how did how did people, you know, how did they deal with this? They did. Uh, and, and they read book after book that deals with this. And yet, you know, it was it was literature that was wi- wildly popular. Hmm. It's interesting because it goes against so much. I mean, it makes sense. That's how Shakespeare always ended his plays where he had cross-dressing okay. women. Um, yep. So there's a yep. there's a standard that's set for that. Um but it's interesting because, you know, at this time, there's also a lot of research about, um, like, I would call pseudoscientific research about women's abilities and intellect and physical, you know, abilities and a woman who's able to fight and in a war <laughs> um, and yeah. then go pan yeah. for gold, you would think would almost challenge a lot of those things. I'm wondering if it's almost like the book that people read like it's widely read, but it's read in secret. Like it's almost like I, I believe no, this stuff. No, that's a, that's an excellent point. I mean, you wonder yet we know that, you know, how many bookstores around new England, you know, were, were people buying, you know, Eliza Allen and in reading about this woman who, you know, deliberately disguised herself as a male was wounded, you know, fought bravely, and and yet, you know, obviously, you know, deceived any number of people for years, you know, as a cross-dresser. And you're absolutely right uh, in the um, certainly unacceptable role of, uh, you know, of soldier, you know, and this is true of these novels where, you know, these women are usually on horseback. You know, they're not in the infantry somewhere, but these are, you know, young women, uh, you know, on horseback with with lances or swords who are fighting bravely. So you have, uh, you know, you've got stories, you know, some of these women, young women die uh, in combat, particularly in the in the Mexican novels. Um, but they all fight very, very bravely and represent their country. So, you know, we don't, as you point out, Kelsey, we don't have that legacy. You know, we've got Molly Pitcher. Right. I don't know whether teachers still talk about Molly Pitcher, um, you know, and, and her role, you know, in, in 1775 and, you know, stepping in for her husband, you know, when he is wounded at the cannon, mouths at the cannon. But, you know, we don't we don't have a legacy of courageous woman in combat, you know, as again, as women who engage in combat and in fact, in leadership roles. And in some cases, um, they are they are martyred. In some cases, they are killed. In other cases, they survive. But uh, the point is to show that you know women can can fight and they can lead. Now, I think the kicker here, Kelsey, is this within Latin culture: Are these stories told to to energize the role of women? for the cause, for nationalism and the Mexican cause, or are they told, are they told to embarrass Mexican men? 
you know, you guys need to get out there, get your acts together and be brave enough. You know, you're at the point really where women are leading. No, this is wrong. So, you know, you kind of question the purpose. And and this purpose is, you know, Mexican women uh, of of the educated classes are aware of this. They write about these kinds of things. And so they realize that maybe they are being used, you know, by the Mexican government for their gender. And so you find, uh, you know, again, it's in the book, you, you find them taking interesting positions. They're still patriots, but you find them taking interesting positions on, on who they are because, you know, the Mexican government wants them involved, wants them engaged, uh, want them to be patriotic, but they don't want to change the social status, the gender status. You know, they want them to continue to be, you know, second class citizens who are powerless. You know, we want you to support the war, but don't get any ideas that somehow coming out of this war, you know, your position as women will have changed. And that's a real fine line to walk. Very difficult for them. But they but they try it. Uh, the United States is is not, you know, not quite as successful. You know, obviously, we come out of the Mexican War, you know, in terms of American women, you know, with, you know, with some evolu- evolutionary changes. I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's not that we decided all of a sudden, oh, guess what? Women should get the right to vote. Uh, but certainly the changes are there and they are, you know, they're there and they're coming even further. I'm um, I, I'm really I appreciate that piece that you just said about understanding that they're being used, understanding and 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 just sort of the it depends. I really like what you said early. Like it just it just depends on who who is writing and and for what purpose. And I'm I'm struck because I I hadn't considered that at all. That maybe it's being used to humiliate Mexican men. And it's just so crazy to me how integral gender, sexuality, and masculinity are all, you know, mm-hmm. intertwined in all of these events in history. Um, and, and thank you for illuminating mm-hmm. that for me. Well, and what strikes you, I think, Kelsey, is is it's true literally in every culture. And it just, you know, it, it expresses itself in different ways. And when you put a culture in crisis, uh, it's absolutely fascinating, you know, as to what organizations, groups, governments, you know, what they try to do in terms of manipulating or managing gender related issues. You know, how far are they willing to go? Um, What compromises are they willing to make? Uh, What do they really believe in terms of of what they say regarding changing roles or, or positions or obligations. Uh, you know, with, uh, with the Mexicans, I mean, it, you know, it, it really, you know, you're somewhat suspicious, I think. Uh, you know, and certainly the, the manipulation is there, uh, you know, with the Americans, you know, as well. It's just that unfortunately, unfortunately for guys, uh, you know, you're dealing with a very, very, uh, you know, increasingly educated and very tough generation here. And, and this is important too, Kelsey. 
These are young American women. They're in their 30s and 40s. You know, these are not women generally in their 60s and 70s and 80s. These are young American women. And so you're you're dealing with with you know a whole group of folks here who are not to be trifled with. And they're gonna be around a long time. And you know, and they they will be reckoned with. And so it's these different challenges pop up and you know, and they observe, okay, how are we treated in, in this situation or that situation? And boy, oh boy, I'll tell you what, it's their responses are are interesting. And again, that's why I've come to, you know, respect, admire. Uh, I mean, there's just no no words really that that reach you know the point where you can express your views as to the courage of so many of these women in so many different ways. You know, again, whether it's you know physical, intellectual, I mean, whatever whatever courage you want to talk about, just uh, you know, very impressive. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.